right let's just pray before we start father give us clarity of, of mind now lord as we turn to your word we just ask that your holy spirit will be our teacher lord we thank you for the truth that you've given us and father we pray that tonight that that more of your truth will just go into our hearts and lord we pray it'll make a difference Lord, that your word will become our, our actual experience. Oh, Lord, we, we just pray now that you'll anoint us. Lord, me as I speak and everyone else as they hear. And because, Lord, we know that unless, unless your Holy Spirit anoints it, it's, it's just not going to do any good. So, Father, just be with us now because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right. If you find Psalm 145, uh, we're in the love phase of this series that we're doing, and uh, you'll remember last week I was saying that we're going to be looking at the different facets of the diamond of love, uh, attacking it from different angles. Now in Psalm 145, and if you go down to verse 8 and verse 9, and this is this is what we want. It says here, 145, Psalm 145 and verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, <coughs> and his compassion is over all that he has made. And what we're going to do tonight is to look at this whole aspect of love and what compassion means. What the Bible teaches about compassion. Now, before we can actually do that, and I think you'll be surprised at what the Bible actually teaches about compassion, but before we do that, we've got to first spend a little bit of time and lay a foundation. And the foundation that we've got to lay is that we've got to get an understanding of the nature of mankind. Because if we're going to say that God has compassion on us, and as we're going to see, we're, we're going to see that it's right that we have compassion on each other, we've got to first understand the nature of man. Before we can understand why we receive compassion, we've got to understand the nature of mankind in, in general. Now, there are two aspects to this, as you're going to see. And we're going to see the aspect of man's, what I've called, wonderfulness, but then we've got to look at the aspect of man's evil, because both these things are there, and both of them relate to this whole thing about compassion. Now, in John 3, verse 1, you read this. Don't actually turn to it. It says, and this was when Jesus was about to meet Nicodemus. And it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, what I want you to notice is it doesn't say there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Jesus never ever saw men and women as part of some big conglomerate mass. Jesus always saw the individual. And that verse gives us, if you like, the first aspect, man's wonderfulness, that nothing can ever take away the individuality that we have before God. 
Each one, even though there are millions and millions of people on the face of the earth, each one is known by God personally as an individual, all right? And all the ones who don't know him yet, he is working on them so that they might come to salvation. But then in John chapter 2, again, don't turn to it, verse 24, we read this. Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, can you see from those two verses from John's Gospel, Jesus certainly saw men and women as individuals. He related to the wonderfulness of men and women created in the likeness of God. And yet, on the other hand, no way would Jesus trust himself to people because he, above everybody else, knew what was in people. He knew the sin and evil in people. Therefore, he wouldn't trust himself to them. Now, what we're going to do now is, very quickly, is we're going to have a quick look at how modern, secular man sees himself. We're going to be asking the question, what is man? What is he? And we're going to see how the modern, a secular man views himself. What does he believe about mankind in general? And there are two basic views that people take. Now, you've got to remember that we're asking now, what does secular man uh, understand about himself? We're asking the world as it is today, what is the world's understanding of mankind? And you've got to remember that this understanding is in the evolutionary framework. The modern world has rejected the Bible. It's rejected the God of the Bible. Therefore, modern man's understanding of himself is in the context of man supposedly having evolved. Now, there are two views. Now, you find some who are very blatantly one view, others who are very blatantly the second view, but everyone will be somewhere between the two extremes. Now, the first extreme is this. It's what I've called the romantic view. Now, you've probably heard the phrase secular humanism. Secular humanism is the religion of the day. It's atheistic, but it's you know, people really stick to it. The secular humanists are very, very strong in their beliefs about mankind. Now, secular humanism affirms, without question, what I have called the wonderfulness of man. All right. The secular humanist sees the human race as being the crown of creation. They look at human life, and they see and they uphold and they revere the beauty of life and the beauty of relationships. Above all else, they believe that the human race has an integrity which is unique to itself, and they value life. So, in fact, the secular humanists, for them, men and women are as high up on the scale as you can get. They believe in the wonderfulness and the dignity of mankind as a race. But you see, the problem with the secular humanists is that eventually they hit an obstacle that they can't ignore. And the obstacle is this. There they are saying how wonderful mankind is, his dignity, the crown of creation, and yet they hit up against the problem of evil and cruelty. 
Because no matter how wonderful you believe mankind is, it's also a fact that mankind is incredibly cruel. The evil that can come from man's heart, well, I mean, history just witnesses to it in the 6,000 years that we've been around. So they have a problem. They have a very high view of man. They say, modern, you know, they see his wonderfulness, his dignity, and they say man is the crown of creation. He is fundamentally a wonderful thing. And yet they hit up again and again and again of the problem of man's evil. But you see, the trouble is that they have no explanation for man's evil at all. They've got no way to explain it within their scheme of thinking. And therefore, what they do is they minimise it, they play it down. They try not to make too big a thing about the fact that man is evil. Now, what they say, there are various things. I mean, some of them say, well, evil is something that man is going to out-evolve. It's kind of our basic primitive nature. And that as we, you know, keep evolving, one, you know, the human race is going to get better and better and better. You must be aware of that philosophy. It's in the media, uh, it's in books you read, it's in novels, the idea that man is evolving upwards and that one day he will be free of all evil and everything like that at all. So some tackle it like that. They say, oh, it's just a quirk of nature, we're going to out-evolve it, and they, they turn a blind eye to it. Others, what they do is they say, well, look, it, it's a funny kind of aberration, it, it's, it's a quirk. Man is basically very wonderful, and uh, this problem of evil, it's a quirk. And so what these people do, they say, it's to do with economic conditions. Can you see what I mean? The old socialist dream, if everyone's got a nice house, plenty of money and plenty of food, and a job to do that he's interested in, they say that then there'll be no evil. Evil is a result of being deprived of basic fundamental human rights. And so they're trying to improve men in a... A political and social way. Now, you see, the trouble, whether it's the bloke who believes we're going to out-evolve it, or whether it's the bloke who believes that it's because we're deprived, aren't we? The problem they've got is that the evidence of all human history is quite to the contrary. All you've got to do is to look back on the history of the human race. There is not the slightest evidence that one, we're out-evolving it. Because if I think anyone can see that the evil in the world is increasing all the time. Um, I mean, sort of like we've had more wars in the last 30 years, I think it is, than the whole of history put together. So can you see, history doesn't bear out that we're going to out-evolve our evil. On the other hand, the people who say, well, I mean, it's due to social deprivation and things like this, look at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, I mean, they were as rich as anything. And yet, look at the evil, that the more they got, the more affluence they had, the more evil they became. So can you see the problem that the romantic has when he comes to trying to understand the nature of man? But you see, the romantic refuses to believe that evil is man's natural condition. What he believes is that man is naturally wonderful and this evil is, well, it's just little quirks. And so he reduces them, tries to ignore them, you see. And the reason that the romantic says that man is fundamentally wonderful, that that's his nature and that evil is a quirk, is because he cannot face up to the only alternative, all right? 
And the only alternative is that man is thoroughly evil. And if evil is man's natural state, if that's how we've evolved, then nothing can change it. Can you see? So the romantics, they say man is wonderful. They ignore the problem of evil. All right, quite simply, because they can't afford to face up to the problem of evil, because if you face up to it, then you've got to say that man is fundamentally evil. It's his evolutionary nature to be evil and cruel. The romantic will not accept that belief. And so he just flies in the face of all the evidence of man's evil, and he says man is wonderful, full stop, evil, it's just a kind of a quirk. Now that leads us on, quite naturally, to the second of the two views that modern man thinks of himself. And it's the cynical view, what I've called the cynical view. You've often heard me say that we're living today in the age of despair. Um, I've spoken here before how, you know, last four or five hundred years, uh, you know, man sort of felt right, you know, we're coming of age. Uh, you know, sort of, we, we are going to now fulfill our full potential as human beings. And so what they did was, they said, well, first, we've got to get rid of any idea of God. Because if, if you believe in a God who's there to punish you and, and sort of like to keep you in order, they say that is preventing us from coming to our full potential. So they say the notion of God is silly now, we don't need him. When the human race were like kiddies in the playpen, then we needed God, the father figure. But now we've come of age, we don't need God. And so man saw that in disposing of the idea of God and saying it was only a myth and, and it was only wish you know, sort of wish fulfillment, as it were, rather than God being real. As soon as they did that, they said, right, this is great, now we're free. There's no one in the universe to stop us. We can now develop our full potential. But you see, the problem was that they discovered that when they said that God was dead, i.e. that he never existed, they then discovered that the high view of man, this idea of, of mankind having dignity and the beauty and the wonderfulness of life, all that came from the idea that man had been created in the image of God. So therefore, if God is dead, so is man as we have always known him. All right. So therefore, in the age of despair, the other way of thinking is that of the cynic. And you see, remember, we're talking about modern man who's trying to understand himself within the framework of evolution. Now, what evolution says is quite simply this. Billions and billions of years ago, nothing turned into something all on its own. It was a total accident. It's chance. All there is in the universe is matter plus time plus chance equals us lot. All right. So therefore, the cynic says, we have evolved out of an impersonal universe. No one put the universe there. It's an accident. It's a quirk. It just happened. And all there is, is the universe itself. It's impersonal. Now then, you see, the thing is that that means that concepts like good and evil are illusions. Can you see? If the universe is just an accident, then any idea of right and wrong or meaning and stuff like that, it's pure illusion that we've dreamed up in our sort of evolutionary process. That there is no such thing as good, there is no such thing as evil or anything like that. 
All there is, is the universe, the machine of the universe. We are a cog in that machine, and we are simply grinding on in the process of evolution. So therefore, any idea of right and wrong and moral grandeur, anything like this, the cynic says that is completely inconsistent with the idea of evolution, and they believe that they know that we have evolved. They think it's been proven, even though it hasn't. Now, therefore, they say, right, what, what can we see in the universe? Is there a principle that is giving any kind of sense in the process of evolution? And, of course, there's one, and it's the survival of the fittest. Evolution, if it's happening, and if that is the answer to life, is quite simply the survival of the fittest. There is no room for things like goodness or beauty, except insofar as tools to help you evolve. Can you see what I mean? They're not absolute concepts in themselves. They're illusions, but if they help, hang on to them. And it was Hitler who said, I do not see why man should not be as cruel as nature. Now, can you see what Hitler is saying there? He's saying if evolution is all there is, and I look around me at nature, nature is destructive. Nature has no time whatsoever for goodness or anything like that. Nature is the strongest surviving. The elite will rise to the top at the expense of the weak. Now Hitler, politically, <coughs> simply put into motion what the world believes. And the world stood back in horror at what he did. But can you see the point? Hitler said, I do not see why man should not be as cruel as nature. So you see, the cynic, what he's saying is this. He says, all we are a part of the universe. There's no difference between us and the rest of the universe, except that we are the highest animal that we've thus far met. Any idea of meaning, uh, beauty, good and evil, all this is crazy, all right? So therefore, what they are saying is that they are explaining the phenomenon of the evil that we see around us. They look at man's evil and they say, well, that's what you've got to expect. It makes sense. We're evolving. It's the survival of the fittest. But you see, the thing is this. For the cynic, he can explain, face up to, and explain the cruelty and the evil of man. But in so doing it, can you see that man himself becomes a nothing. <clears throat> he becomes a cog in the machine of nature. No longer set apart from nature, no longer special, he becomes an absolute nothing. And that is why we live today in a consumer society. This is why we are all numbers. This is why individuals are expendable. This is why, for instance, you have a communist regime in many parts of the world. And they say all that matters is the corporate state. The individual has no meaning outside of the state. Therefore, any individual is expendable for the sake of the state. Can you see? And therefore, men and women are reduced to absolutely nothing. It's also the same with what I call the pseudo-spiritual view in the world today. Because, uh, I mean, many, many people aren't happy with atheism. They want to believe in something spiritual.
And for those people who do, the vast majority today embrace, in fact, variations of Eastern faiths. I mean, this is why, for instance, yoga and meditation and things like this are so popular in the West. It's people embracing the spirituality of the East. I mentioned this last week or the week before, that basically the Eastern faiths, they, they don't believe that the universe objectively exists at all. They believe that the only reality there is is God, not a personal God, but the only sort of thing that exists is a great impersonal God and that we're all part of God. If you like, we're a dream that God's having, or we're part of the result of a process that God, inverted commas, is going through as it changes, because he's not a he, not a personal God, but just a kind of a very mystical, impersonal God. Now, for the Eastern faith, salvation is freeing yourself from the illusion that you are actually an individual who exists in your own right. Can you see? Because you don't. So for the Eastern faith, salvation is working towards that realization that you don't actually exist at all. And the glory for them is that at death you eventually merge into the everything which is another way of saying you merge into the nothing. And can you see, the Eastern faiths as well are giving us loud and clear that they believe that man is nothing. Now, can you see those two ideas? That what we've got in secular humanism is we've got the high view of man. They see the wonderfulness of man, the beauty of man, the glory of man, but they ignore the evil of man. And of course that is disastrous. And then you've got the low view, the cynics and the eastern faiths. Now they face up to evil, alright, and they're honest in doing that. But in so doing, they deny man's value. They make mankind a nothing, a cog in the machine. There is no longer anything special about the human race per se. And that, of course, is hideous. Now, <clears throat> what we've got to do, before we understand what the Bible teaches about the fact that God has compassion on his creation, we've got to understand the truth about man. And you see, the thing is that Jesus held neither of those two views. He wasn't a romantic, all right, because he faced up to the problem of evil, all right. But Jesus wasn't a cynic, because Jesus saw great value in the men and women that he created, after all, in his image. And the key to this is that Jesus understood it properly, because his reference point, as he looked upon this problem, wasn't that of man, it was from God's point of view. Can you see? Jesus looked at this whole thing from the viewpoint of God himself. Um, and that really today, the, the, the process or the presupposition of 90% of modern philosophy is that of rationalism. Now, don't worry about the word. But what it means is that man says that we do not allow any information from outside of us. The only way we can understand ourselves and the universe around us is to start from where we are, observe life as it is now, and try and build up the picture. All right. 
It's rather like someone standing in the middle of a forest trying to work out how you get out of it. Now, Jesus saw it from God's point of view, which would be the equivalent of someone in a helicopter hovering above the forest who can see the whole lot. Can you see that? So, unless you're seeing things from God's point of view, it's impossible to come to a right understanding of the nature of man. In fact, to do it, you've got to have what God thinks. And without what God tells us in the Bible, it's impossible to make sense of it. Um, let's actually see this from God's perspective, and you'll see how it all makes sense. Because firstly, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have the creation of the human race. And the fundamental thing about the creation of the human race, as opposed to the creation of the rest of nature, be it plants, animals, or whatever, is that God created mankind in his own image. And it's interesting, because if you read through the Genesis creation account, you'll find that at each phase when God creates on each of the days, you know, he does a day's work and he finishes, then he picks up the next morning, as it were, you'll find at the end of each phase, it says, and God looked upon it and it was good and saw it was good. After the end of the sixth day, when God has created Adam and Eve, he looked down and the Bible says, and he saw that it was very good. Now, can you see, this is where the high view of man comes from. Mankind, and here the secular humanists are right, but for the wrong reasons. We are the crown of creation precisely because the Creator has put us there to be that very thing. And because we are created in the image of God, therefore, ideas like truth, meaning, right, wrong, moral grandeur, personal integrity, the value, the supreme value of human life, all these make absolute sense because if God has created us in his own image, then all those things are absolutely true. So therefore, we as Christians, with the word of God and with Jesus, we share with the secular humanist the high view of man. We have men and women as high up as you can get them. The value of human life is supreme to us as Christians. But the problem with the secular humanist is that he won't face up to the problem of evil. And then you come to Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of Adam and Eve from God's grace. You have a rebellion in man against his creator. Therefore, sin and evil has invaded mankind and has also, through him, invaded the world in which he lives. Now, can you see that that explains the phenomenon of man's evil and man's cruelty, you see? But the point is that because of the salvation that Jesus has won, that cruelty and evil is not irrevocable. Can you see? Any individual man and woman can be redeemed from that evil or that cruelty. 
But the important thing to realise is that even though we have fallen, even now mankind is given over to sin, the important thing is that he is still in the image of God. There are some Christians who believe that when Adam and Eve fell, they lost the image of God, and that you only regain it when you get converted. Now, that's completely false. Men and women may be fallen, but we are still, all of us, each one of us, in the image of God. In James 3 and verse 9, when he talks about the tongue, he writes this, he says, with it, speaking about the evils of the tongue, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. The Bible doesn't go along with the idea that men and women lost the image of God because of sin. They didn't. Every man, woman and child who has ever existed, or who does exist, or whoever will exist, are created in the image of God. And with that comes a dignity and a value upon their life that cannot be put high enough. And what we need to realise is that this goes for all people. It goes for the drug addict. It goes for the IRA bomber. It goes for the child molester. No matter how great the evil that men and women are capable of and do, nothing changes the fact that they are still created in the image of God. And because of the death of Jesus, they are still savable. They are still redeemable. The sin and the evil in their life can be put right. Now, putting that together, what it means is this. That we as Christians, along with Jesus, because this is how he saw the problem, we have the basis for the high view of man that the romantic has. But unlike the romantic, we can afford and we have every good reason to face up to the problem of the evil that the cynic sees. And yet in facing up to the evil that the cynic sees, we do not have to share his low view of man, saying that man is a nothing, that man is finally expendable, you see. The final point is this. The reason that modern man cannot understand himself truly and is caught between these two extremes, man's wonderfulness and his evil, the reason that they cannot tie those things together, the reason that they cannot get a coherent idea of the truth, is simply this. It's only through the Bible that we are given the knowledge that mankind and the universe we live in aren't as they started out. Can you see? Remember, modern philosophy says we look around us and we start with ourselves as we are and we reason out from there. Now the great problem with that is that they are assuming that we are as we are and we have always been like that. That isn't true. The human race is no longer as it once was. The universe and mankind are subnormal. We, all of us, and when we look in our world, we're not seeing ordinary human beings, we're not seeing normal humanity, we're seeing subnormal humanity. And the reason Jesus came was to restore us 
to being normal. So therefore, can you see an incredible change has happened in mankind's history? We are not what we started out to be. And therefore, with that knowledge, we can begin to understand ourselves in the way that we ought to, the truth about us. Mankind is wonderful, does have dignity and integrity, and yet, nevertheless, mankind is evil. And yet, that evil is not natural to man. That evil was the invasion of an outside power when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God. Therefore, can you see the human race is redeemable? It can be improved, but not by evolving, but through what Jesus has done. So the point is, we share the high view of man, but we're not unrealistic. We don't turn a blind eye to the sin and the evil, because we, as Christians, are the only ones in the Bible who actually have the answer to that problem. Man and the universe he lives in are no longer normal. Something happened which changed it, and Jesus came to change it back. So what we've got, finally, is this, and going back to what we read in Psalm 145. The truth of the matter is <coughs> that God considers mankind worth having compassion on. Can you see? God realises that we are now subnormal, but he knows what we really are, created in his image. Therefore, the point is that mankind, men and women, whether Christians or whether not Christians, God considers us worth having compassion on. Now, that is the context in which we can now go on and try and understand something about what compassion is. And I think it might surprise you. Because as far as the Bible's concerned, when it comes to compassion, be it God's compassion, or the compassion he wants us to have for each other, it in actual fact is made up of two different things. And they might surprise you. The first thing that compassion is comprised of is this. It's comprised of outrage and it's comprised of anger. Go to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and find chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. Now, this is talking about Jesus, and it says, As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, this Greek word here used, and I'll tell you what it is in a moment, is used often of Jesus, him having compassion on people. For instance, when he fed the 5,000, it says he had compassion on them. When Jesus met the two blind men by the side of the road, it says he had compassion on them. When the leper came to him, it says Jesus had compassion on him. And you'll remember that Jesus came across a mum whose son, her young child, was dead. And again it said Jesus had compassion on her. Now this Greek word here, compassion, is splanknizomai, which sounds a bit of a mouthful, but it's splanknizomai. And what it literally means is this. 
to have your bowels yearning. Now, I've got to explain that, because we've got to get into the Jewish mind here. Splankni that word compassion, comes from the noun splankna. And what that is, it's the inner parts of your body biologically. Alright? It's literally the inside of your body. <coughs> now, to the Jewish mind, the seat of the deepest emotions weren't in the heart. In the West, it's all lovey-dovey, hearts and flowers, isn't it? But to the Jewish mind, the seat of our deepest emotions were considered to be internally in the innermost parts of your body, in your bowels or in your guts. And that is literally the way that the Jews thought about it. And it's like sometimes you know that something can happen, and, and it does. It gets you in the gut. It, it creates a gut-level reaction. Now, this is precisely what this Greek word for compassion means. It's a gut-level reaction in the face of need. It's when someone is so moved to the depths of their being, a gut-level thing, when they're so moved to the depths of their being, they cannot but act to try and alleviate whatever suffering it is that they've come across that has caused that gut-level reaction in them. It's literally the feeling that says, I can't stand watching this, I must act. It's the inability to be passive in the face of suffering, but to do something about it. That is what this Greek word for compassion means. Now, we talk about being moved by compassion. So, it's something moved me. And uh, there was an occasion in the Bible when um, we read that Jesus was deeply moved. Go to John 11. John chapter 11, and, and this is the, uh, the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, and we'll start reading from verse 33. <coughs> when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then again, Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Now, here we have the fact that Lazarus has died and Jesus has come to the tomb, all right? And we're seeing here that he is deeply moved. And he cries. He cries. Now, the thing that we've got to ask ourselves is, um, why is Jesus crying? I suppose your first thought is, well, I mean, if a friend of yours dies, you cry. But that's missing the point that Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. Jesus knew that in another ten minutes, Lazarus was going to be alive. Can you see? Jesus wasn't crying because Lazarus had died in that sense, because Jesus knew that he was going to be alive again in ten minutes. That is not the reason why Jesus wept, and we need to understand why it was he did cry. Because this phrase, deeply moved, all right, it's embrimiamai, 
And what it literally means in the Greek is to snort with anger. In Greek literature, it's used of stallions in battle. You know, in the olden days, they used to sort of like, you know, they didn't have tanks and jeeps, it was horses. And you'd have the army lined up ready to charge. And you know how horses snort, don't they? as they're getting ready to go. That's the Greek word that they'd use. The idea of being uh, charged up, ready for the battle, the adrenaline flowing. Or again, the Greeks would use this to describe a, a bull about to charge. You know, in the old bull ring, you know, the bull's getting all worked up and he's getting ready to charge. That is the, the, the meaning of the Greek word here, to snort with anger. Now, when Jesus wept, we weren't, it's not tears of sadness. It's not that, oh, poor, you know, poor guy, he's died, because Jesus knew that he was going to be alive again. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus actually cries tears of anger and outrage at the obscenity of death. Not so much for that individual, because he was going to raise him from the dead, but Jesus is being confronted with the reality of death. And there was one thing that we were never created for, and that's to die. And that's why eventually, at the end of time, everyone will be raised again from the dead. God hates death. We weren't created to die. We were created for life, an eternal life is what we've got back. But can you see, <coughs> Jesus is angry at the obscenity of death, which was the final result of sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. And that Jesus is angry here at the abnormality of mankind and the abnormality of the universe he lives in. Because remember, when Jesus created mankind, it wasn't like that. When Jesus created the world and the universe, it was perfect perfection. Now it's imperfect as the result of sin. And Jesus' anger, we're not here talking about the anger of a holy God against sin. We're talking about the compassion of God. We're talking about the anger in God's heart at sin itself because we're the ones who suffer for it. Can you see? This isn't anger against us because we've sinned. This is anger against the effects that we live with because of sin. This is what the Bible means to be moved with compassion. You see, we live in a universe that is a great contradiction. We live in the contradiction between what God made us to be and what we actually are. And every day we're struggling with that. We are not what we should be, we are not what we can be, and the human race is all the time suffering from the results and the effects of the sin that Jesus has come to set him free from. So we see Jesus here angry at the suffering caused by sin. Now what this means for us is this, that genuine outrage, genuine outrage ought to be part of our Christian lives. Against inhumanity. When we see the inhumanity of man, that should outrage us because of the suffering it's causing people. When we see injustice, that should cause outrage in us because of the suffering it causes people to go through. Outrage at social evils. Outrage at illness. This is part of what must motivate us in the healing ministry. 
Jesus is outraged at sickness and illness. That's why he healed people. He had compassion on the crowd. He healed their sick. He was angry that they were sick. Wasn't blaming them, but he was angry at the sickness. And that's why he dealt with it. And that this sense of outrage and anger at the abnormality and evil of life ought to be part of our experience as Christians. In fact, if you think about it, we as Christians, we should feel life more than anyone. I mean, you know, certainly joy and peace and stuff like that, but, but in all areas of life, I mean, we ought to be the ones feeling it to the full, living it to the full. And we're talking about compassion. We've got our modern word, haven't we? Passion. And that creates in our minds the idea of intense feeling. We talk about it's always a passionate speaker. Intense feeling, this is all part of uh, what we ought to be experiencing as Christians in the compassion of God. And we're going to be back to the thing about passion in a short moment. So there's the first thing that makes up compassion. The first element in it is outrage and anger. And the second one is identification. So we've seen that the first thing in compassion is outrage and anger, and the second is identification. Um, in Hebrews 10, verse 34, don't, don't turn to it, he's writing to Christians who are being, you know, pretty badly persecuted. And he says to them, for you had compassion on the prisoners. Now we're going to see here the second Greek word that gets translated, uh, compassion. Uh, we've already seen splanknizomai, gut-level stuff. Now we're seeing a different one. It's sympathio. And that's the other Greek word. And it means to suffer with another. Comes from two other Greek words. Sum, which means with or alongside. And pasco, which is the verb to suffer. And in actual fact, that Greek verb, pasco, to suffer, that's where we get the other meaning of our modern-day word, passion. Because in modern English, the word passion has two meanings. It means intense feeling, we've seen that one, but the second meaning is, is, is specifically intense feelings of suffering. And you know that sort of like, um, you know, sometimes Jesus is referred to as the Paschal Lamb. Well, that word Paschal, the suffering lamb, that is where we get that word Paschal from, passion. So we're seeing intense feelings, but now we're seeing that compassion and passion, that what it's meaning, it has that, as that aspect of suffering with other people who are suffering. Go to Hebrews in chapter 4. Let's see a couple of other examples of this word, sympathio. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. <coughs> Now, in this verse, it's not translated compassion, it's translated a different word, which is quite a good one. And it says this, For we have not, this is uh, Hebrews 4.15, speaking of Jesus, We have not a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. Now, that's that Greek word compassion. Here translated sympathise. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Now, there you have, 
this Greek word, sympathio. And what the guy is saying here, he's saying, look, Jesus, as our great high priest, he is able to sympathise with us. He is able to suffer alongside with us in day-to-day -day life. Why? Because he became a human being as well. He knows the pressures. He knows the temptations. He knows the pain. And therefore, Jesus is able to have compassion on us. He's able to sympathise with us. He's able to draw alongside and suffer alongside with us. Go to 1 Peter. <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 3. And here we'll actually see the Bible commanding us to relate in this way to each other. <coughs> he says, finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy. Have sympathy with each other. There it is, sympathio. Love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And this word, sympathio, a literal meaning that brings out everything that it's saying is this. To have deep feelings with or alongside someone. Now that is what true sympathy really is. It's a word, it can be a bit wet in English, can't it? You know, sometimes we sort of got a little bit of a cold and we want sympathy, and we go, oh, there, there, oh, poor boy, you know, stuff like that. That isn't really quite what the Greek word is, uh, is meaning here. Um, you know if you have a tuning fork and a glass, all right, and you hit the tuning fork and it vibrates, and if you hold it near the glass, the glass vibrates in sympathy. Now that's what it means. It means that the experience is passed on from one object to the other. So in true sympathy or compassion, what you've got is that somebody is suffering, and the one who is sympathizing with them, they share that experience of the suffering. That is what compassion in a biblical sense is. That is what sympathy in a biblical sense is. It's when you share the experience of suffering of the person that you are having compassion on. I've said before about Ezekiel, and there came a time when he was called to take the word of the Lord to some exiles who were living at the River Kibar. Now, I mean, they were having a tough time. They were exiles, and, and he had the word of the Lord. And what it says is this. This is Ezekiel speaking. He said, I sat where they sat, overwhelmed among them for seven days. Now, can you see? Ezekiel has got a word from the Lord for these guys who were suffering. They were in exile. That's not easy. Now, he didn't just arrive, set up his portable pulpit, and lay it on them, you know, with the old Doc Martins on, and in any ways, with the word of the Lord. What he does is he sat there silent amongst them for seven days. He got there. He didn't open his mouth. He said, I sat where they sat, overwhelmed among them for seven days. Ezekiel had God's word for them when he arrived, but what he didn't have when he arrived was God's heart for them. In order to get God's heart for those people, he had to sit there and share their experience. Then he was overwhelmed. And then the message he brought was so powerful and so anointed, because it wasn't just the word of the Lord. It was the word, it was the truth spoken in love.
Can you see? It was compassion. It was heartfelt. He was genuinely sharing the experience of those people that he was sent to. Nothing insensitive about it. Uh, you know, we spoke about old Job's comforters in they dived with their boots on. All they were worried about was their doctrine, which was wrong anyway. But even if their doctrine had been right, it would have been wrong if they were only worried about their doctrine. They should have been worried about Job. They should have shared the suffering, entered into it with him, loved him. Doesn't mean you've got to compromise, but it, the Bible says speak the truth in love. This is what it means. Not compromise, but entering into the suffering of the people who need to hear whatever word it is that God has for them. Let's think about Moses for a moment. Now then, Moses gets the calling from God, you know, set my people free and all this. He realised, oh, the Israelites, they're not supposed to be here, they're supposed to be free. So what does he do? Out he goes, sticks his boots on, out he goes, and uh, he ends up murdering somebody, okay, and uh, the result of that is that the Israelites were worse off afterwards, all right, than they were before. Now, what Moses did didn't help in the slightest. He was definitely called of God, but he moved out of time before God had prepared him, and therefore he caused nothing but trouble. And the reason was that he wasn't identified with his people. He was a Jew, yes, but his people were in slavery. How was Moses brought up? He was brought up as a yuppie in Pharaoh's palace. Can you see? He had every advantage. So he gets a call from God, right, got to help my fellow Jews, all right. And in he marches, you know, with all the confidence of one of these high-flown executive yuppies. And in he goes and he blows it completely. He thought nothing of the consequences of his action on the very people he was trying to help. His problem was that he wasn't identified with the people that God had called him to. Now, God had called him to those people. But there's no way he could do anything to help them until he was identified with him. Now, how did God get him to be identified with the people he was called to lead? How did God get compassion in Moses' heart? I'll tell you. From the high-fluting lifestyle of the palace, he had 40 years in the wilderness looking after sheep. He then began to realise what the Jews were going through. Can you see? And it was that that enabled Moses to identify with the Jews, to have compassion on them, to have sympathy with them. Go to Hebrews 11, where the writer actually talks about Moses and this process. Hebrews 11, and find verse 24. <coughs> and we see this, by faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, can you see, compassion had now come into Moses' heart. He, he laid aside all his inherent advantages. And he became one of the people, he became like them, he identified with them, and therefore, because he was identified with them, because he had entered into the experience of their suffering, 
he was only therefore ready to lead them and to bring God's word to them. Think about Isaiah. Read Isaiah chapters 1 to 5. You've got five chapters of anointed prophetic teaching from a spirit-filled prophet, all right? And you read through it, and basically, Isaiah is saying, woe to you, to everyone he could actually lay his hands on and point at. You know, woe to them for their sin, woe to you for your sin, woe to that lot for their sin. And this was all he was doing, woe, woe to you, aren't you a rotten lot? Now, everything he said was true, it was all anointed stuff. But you see, the problem with Isaiah 1 to 5 is that God's using a baby prophet. Can you see, always get into trouble when you use baby prophets. But God in his grace, he does. But there had to come a time when Isaiah grew up. You see, because what was happening is, that Isaiah was going in there with prophetic anointed preaching and what he was saying was true but he was trampling over everybody's feelings. Can you see? Now what happened was in chapter 6 he had his interview with the king. It's one that we all have to have eventually. Remember he said, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. Suddenly now Isaiah is face to face with Jesus. Now we have a tendency to compare ourselves to each other. And uh, if you're doing this, and I've done it, I mean, like, the way you do it is this, because our hearts are deceitful. You find the least impressive person going, and you compare yourself to them, don't you? And then you come out rather good. Right, now, Isaiah is now standing before Jesus in all his glory. And now, he's not comparing himself to the least of God's people, all the plebs. Now he's got to compare himself to Jesus, and suddenly everything comes into balance. Suddenly Isaiah can see things, and see himself, most importantly, as they really are. And after a ministry of woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, the significant thing is that Isaiah then says, woe is me. Now suddenly Isaiah is identified with the people he's ministering to. Because he thought they were rotten sinners. But because he was a spirit-filled prophet, you see, he thought he wasn't too bad. Now he realised that he was as sinful and as bad and as evil as the people God had called him to preach to. He was identified with them. And what's wonderful is that Isaiah chapter 1 to 5, you've got denunciation. All, it was all of the Lord, but pure denunciation of sin. All, all death, no life in it. Isaiah chapter 6, he gets sorted out, woe is me. And then in chapter 7, you have the very first prophecy in the book of Isaiah of the coming of Jesus, the Saviour. Because God doesn't just want to condemn sin. I mean, he wants to convict people, but only so they can put it right, can you see? Now, when Isaiah was identified with the people he was ministering to, then there was life in his ministry, because Jesus was coming through. But before he was identified with them, it was just Isaiah coming through. Can you see? The law was anointing it, yeah, but it was Isaiah coming through. And it, it, there wasn't compassion in it. Can you see? There wasn't compassion in it. That was what Isaiah needed. Go to Luke 22. Because as you know, when I'm ever giving examples like this of people in the Bible, I always do Peter. Always. He's so valuable, Peter is. He really is. Luke 22, 5 verse 31. <coughs> Remember, this was when Jesus was saying that Satan's going to sift you like wheat, and eventually Peter denied him. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Now here, Peter, he's too full of himself, isn't he? Lord, I'll die for you. Well, as a result of this, Jesus is going to give him his chance, and what does Peter do? He blows it, doesn't he? He runs away. He denies the Lord. He lies. All right? Peter had to realise that he didn't have in him what he thought he did. If he was going to follow the Lord, it wasn't going to be what he was doing. It was going to have to be what Jesus was doing through him. And Peter had to be broken. Peter had to be emptied of himself. And Satan sets up that situation where Peter eventually denied Jesus. And it was the result of that that Peter became so broken. All right. It was, that was the making of, pe of Peter. Sometimes we say that a situation will make or break somebody, don't we? But God makes by breaking. It's not make or break. God makes by breaking. We, we have to go, that, go through that. But the important thing I want you to realise is that obviously Jesus, as with all the twelve, was preparing them to be church leaders. All right, and they were going to be very important church leaders. I'm not meaning important in the sense that they were important as people, because, I mean, they as people are no more important than us. We're all as important as each other. But their, their part in God's plan was vitally important, all right? And Peter was going to be a shepherd of God's flock, and Jesus is preparing him for that. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Now this phrase, turned again, the Greek is epistrypho. Now that's where we get the word conversion from. And uh, technically, technically, uh, sort of the idea of being converted isn't here. It's not talking about someone becoming a Christian. I mean, we say that someone got converted when they became a Christian. That technically isn't the biblical word to use. What it means is a, a kind of a turning round and going the other way. And in that sense, we've got to be converted all the time, haven't we? I mean, if that's what conversion means, then we must keep being converted every day. Because every day we've got to be real, hey, I've got to turn away from that and go the other way, all right? But here, Jesus is referring to that incredible failure that Peter is going to have. Peter doesn't think he's going to have it because Peter was a success. But Jesus knew that Peter was going to go through this intense failure. And he says, when you have turned again, i.e., when you have got right with me after your failure, when you've turned away from yourself, Peter, and start relying on me rather than yourself, he says, then, and only then, strengthen my brethren. Jesus did not envisage Peter being a leader in the church until after his failure and his breaking. You see, the thing is, if that failure hadn't come to Peter, I'll tell you, he would have been a terrible leader in the church. I wouldn't have wanted to be in his church. And I'll tell you why. Peter was a success. Peter was a success story. He was just that kind of character, wasn't he? Now, the reason I wouldn't have wanted to be in his church as long as he was a success is for this reason. I'm a failure. And I'll tell you, when successful Christians get in positions of leadership, they are intolerant to us plebs and our failure, aren't they? <coughs> now, can you see the subtlety of this? It wasn't that Peter was a success at all. 
Peter just hadn't realised his own failure. And can you see, it's only safe for people to have ministries. And it's only safe for Christians to be in authority in the church when they know what failures they are. Can you see? Because then they can have compassion on other believers they're leading who also have failure. But where you don't get this, you get authoritarian leadership. You know, it's a kind of a pull your socks up, pull yourself together. Why aren't you doing better? And it's all the time putting more and more demands on you. It's legalistic. You know, and, and it's hard. You know, so that if you fall into sin, you think, oh goodness, I've got to face the elders now. Can you see? No love, no understanding. That's because any elders like that, unlike Peter, they've got into authority in the church before they've been broken, before they failed. So can you see, before Peter could be a leader in the church, he had to be identified with the people he would be leading. And you see, the people he would be leading, like all Christians, were going to be failures, just like us. Well, Peter was a success. How can a successful leader identify with plebs who fail? They can't. So therefore that breaking had to come and in Peter experiencing his own failure. Therefore he was identified. He, he could then have compassion on other people he was leading as they were struggling with their failure. He, you know, no way was Jesus going to let Peter be one of these big leaders with a successful Christian life. I'll tell you, there, are, there isn't anyone with a successful Christian life. There are only people who either manage to kid us or we kid ourselves about. Can you see? We are all failures, every one of us. And Peter had to be identified with the people he was going to lead. He would then be able to pass the failures because he was a failure himself. And so it is exactly with Jesus. This is Jesus' attitude, not just to us, but to the whole world. This is the compassion that God has for us. At the heart of Christianity is the incarnation. God became a man. And can you see that at the heart of incarnation is identification? God helped us by identifying with us. Do you remember when we were doing the salvation series, I was showing you that the way that Jesus beats a problem is by becoming the problem. And the problem was twofold. Firstly, the problem was man, it was us. And secondly, the problem was sin. Now, how did Jesus beat those problems? Well, he beat the first problem because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He beat the problem of man by becoming an ordinary human being. So that's how he beat that problem. How did he beat the problem of sin? 2 Corinthians 5.21, you should know this off by heart after the salvation series. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Now can you see Jesus beats the problem by becoming it? He became a human being. Problem number one solved, and then he became sin itself. Problem number two solved. The, the heart of Christianity and salvation is that God, in his compassion, has totally identified himself with us. 
Although God is up there in the sense that he lives in heaven and he's infinite and he's above all, of course he is. In that sense, God is above everything. He's out there, yes. But the beauty of the incarnation is at the same time, God isn't just out there. He's in here as well. Can you see he's close to us? He's close to us. He's identified with us. He's not cold. He's not aloof. He's not out there. He's a God of compassion. And you see the point about the incarnation, God becoming a man and then dying on the cross, is that no one in life, through sin and evil, can sink so low that Jesus hasn't gone lower. Can you see? No one can sink so low that Jesus hasn't already sunk lower for them. That's compassion. Can you see what I mean? The whole human race is redeemable, no matter the evil. No matter how bad any individual may be, child molesters, IRA bombers. But then on the other hand, there are no degrees, we're just as bad as they are to God. But can you see what I mean? That every individual is perfectly redeemable, all they need to do is to accept the answer to the problem that Jesus holds out to them, and therefore they can be saved. Christian love implies compassion in these different forms. And what that means is that for us, whether it's with each other or our non-Christian friends, because here we don't, you know, there's no distinction. It's not just that we're supposed to be like this with each other, we are, but with our non-Christian friends as well. And what it means is that because Christian love implies this compassion of God, the compassion of God requires that you and I are incarnated into other people's problems. Can you see what I mean? Incarnated into other people's problems. Sharing their experience, suffering alongside of them. Not marching in saying, well, you're not doing very well, are you? Pull your socks up. But marching in as someone who knew, well, boy, you cocked it up good and proper when you went through something like that, so how can you be hard on them? Because they are. In fact, what you can do, you can share their suffering and help them not make the mistakes that you did, can you see? But not going in with this harsh attitude, come on, pull yourself together, but suffering alongside being incarnated into their problems, sharing their problems, feeling their problems with them. And you see, this is one reason why God leads you and I through so many problems, isn't it? Because if you don't go through problems, how are you going to help other people who go through problems? How can you feel for people and have compassion with them in their problems if you haven't got any problems? Can you see how ridiculous it is? Again, I come back to the, th the thing, when you meet these successful Christians, I'll tell you, someone, somewhere, is kidding someone. There aren't any successful Christians. Can you see? We all go through problems. But, there's all the difference in the world between Christians who will admit their failure in their problems, and the Christians who make out, like, of course, they're sailing along, no problem, having victory over their problems all the time. They're no help. Sorry. If, if you've had victory over your problems from the day you got born again, you're no help to me. I've had nothing but problems since the day I got born again. Can you see? This is what in compassion implies. It was C.S. Lewis who, who said, I mean, C.S. Lewis is probably, apart from the Bible, he's got to be the most quotable author you can read. And he said, 
True friendship begins when one person says to another, What? You too? Oh, oh, I thought I was the only one. That's compassion. And that is where true friendship begins. And can you see, this is why we've got to be willing to share our failures. Uh, in James, he says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. In actual fact, the Greek word isn't sins, it's faults. Faults. So the thing is, confess your failures to each other. I'll tell you mine, you tell me yours. Not so that we can all see who's the worst failure and score points or anything like that. But can you see, if you only share your success stories then the rest of us aren't going to be able to identify with you. Can you see? This is what it means to be identified with each other. So compassion, what does it boil down to? End up now with a kind of succinct, crisp and incredibly profound statement. It all boils down to this. God is love. It's the facets of the diamond of God's love that we're studying in, in, in this series uh, at this particular time. God understood the nature of man. Of course he did, he created us. He knew man's wonderfulness, but that man was subnormal, evil and sin. But he understood us. Because of his compassion, he was angered and he was outraged at the suffering that mankind was going through because of sin. Step number one in compassion. He was angered and outraged at the plight that we ended up in and was therefore moved to the depth of his being so he had to act. That automatically led on to the fact that he became one of us. He identified with us in order to provide a way of escape from our plight. So there you have it, compassion. Understanding people and the problem. Being angered, outraged at the suffering they go through. Saying, I've got to do something about it. I can't just be passive. I've got to help. I've got to do something. And then through identifying with them and being alongside of them in that problem, in those trials, in whatever they're going through, then being the means of God bringing blessing and victory into that situation. Right, next time, another facet of the diamond.